So today I'd like to welcome Dr. Zach Kahn. Uh, Zach did his uh, medical school training here at Maryland, stayed on for his uh, surgical training and, and subspecialty training in uh, cardiac or uh, cardiovascular um, surgery and is now is rapidly been very productive in a short amount of time with numerous publications, heavy involvement on, in so many of our uh, sickest patients' uh, care. Uh, he's the director of uh, PE management, mechanical circulatory support, ECMO, lung transplant, and probably more thing, many more things to come if there are more things. So uh, thanks, Zach, for taking the time to, to join us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's really easy to be uh, in charge of things no one else wants to <laughs> do at all. Um, so, you know, I tried to put together a talk that hopefully encompasses how we at least approach on the surgical service patients who are asked to evaluate with massive pulmonary embolism. Uh, no disclosures relative to this talk, unfortunately. Um, so we'll just talk about the scope of the problem, some of the pathophysiology, uh, which I think is very important when uh, addressing a lot of these patients, uh, some of the just fundamental definitions when it comes to pulmonary embolism, and then uh, some of the outcomes of current non-surgical therapies. Uh, we'll get into a little bit about the history of uh, surgical approaches to this disease, um, and then talk about our current practice at UMC, our approach, our outcomes, and then if we have time, I'd like to just finish with a little bit about misconceptions, I think, surrounding the surgical treatment of massive pulmonary embolism. So, you know, between 100 and 200,000 deaths per year uh, attributable to pulmonary embolism. It's the third leading cause of cardiovascular death, uh, according to the uh, um, CDC, and obviously the number one uh, most preventable cause of death amongst hospitalized patients. And you can kind of just see in this picture uh, from uh, embolectomy how, how significant and morbid uh, this disease can be and how uh, that would clearly obstruct blood flow to the lungs and therefore to the body. From a pathophysiologic standpoint, um, one of the most important things to understand is the RV is not a pressure-generating um, ventricle, and it's not happy anytime there is pressure overload. Volume overload it tolerates to some extent, but pressure overload almost never. And if you think about that, the initial insult of a pulmonary embolism is an anatomic blockage of blood flow through a vessel. Immediately, and by definition, increasing your pulmonary vascular resistance, uh, the RV is then pressure overloaded. That causes dysfunction and dilation, decreasing RV cardiac output. Uh, there's some dysfunction then of left ventriculars, uh, left ventricular ability to eject through uh, intraventricular uh, septal uh, um, shifting. Uh, and then that decreases LV preload, decreased LV output, uh, causing systemic arterial hypotension. In addition, that increased pressure that the RV now must exert increases its wall tension. You get increased RV myocardial oxygen demand, and uh, which is the fundamental uh, cause of troponin leaks from RV ischemia during uh, RV strain. Uh, that uh, also decreases coronary perfusion, again, leading to systemic arterial hypotension. And what's important is none of this actually has anything to do with hypoxia, which commonly is the uh, more discussed problem associated with pulmonary embolism in general. When it comes to a massive pulmonary embolism, hemodynamic uh, compromise leads most of the mortality rather than direct hypoxic or bradycardic arrest. Um, obviously, hypoxia leads to increased PVR on its own, therefore worsening this uh, process, but um, independent of that, uh, the anatomic obstruction is what leads to the rapid decline in these patients. So talking about the spectrum of uh, pulmonary embolism, there's subclinical or simple PEs, which are hemodynamically not significant with no evidence of right ventricular strain. Patients can either be symptomatic or entirely asymptomatic and incidentally found. Uh, patients can have right heart strain, which describes them as submassive. Again, this cohort does not have hemodynamic compromise. Um, and then you enter the massive component of pulmonary embolism, which is now uh, 
hemodynamic compromise, shock, cardiac arrest. Um, by the way, I don't know if you noticed that these three pictures are exactly the same picture. Um, and actually was a subclinical PE in this patient that was instantly found. Uh, and I think the important first take-home message is anatomic distribution or burden of thrombus does not correlate to clinical outcome. And that's been verified in multiple registry analyses and, and uh, radiology uh, um, manuscripts where you can have a big saddle pulmonary embolism obstructing five lobes and you can have normal uh, hemodynamics, no decrease in uh, saturation, and a normal feeling patient. Um, and therefore, we, we tend to use this more physiologic classification um, when we talk about PE because these do correlate to outcome, as we'll talk about now. So if you look at all comers for PE, this is just from one of the major registries associated with, mass, with pulmonary embolism, you can see uh, as you increase in physiologic severity, your mortality obviously increases with a less than 2% uh, mortality associated with a simple P. Again, that's a P with no RV strain, no hemodynamic compromise. Uh, it grows to 8 to 15 or 5 to 15 percent in the submassive cohort, and then all the way up to 65, and in some more recent registry data, up to 80 percent in patients with massive PE suffering uh, cardiac arrest. And by the way, this is not only if you're treated while in cardiac arrest, it's just the advent of a cardiac arrest. So even if you get that patient back, they still carry about a 60 to 80 percent mortality. Um, and we're going to talk about um, predominantly this cohort of patients, while the other uh, two groups are, are interesting and, you know, I, I think evolving uh, um, patient populations in regards to what intervention they should receive. Um, I think there's less controversy, at least, in the massive P group, I, I, I hope there is. Um, so just from another major registry analysis, looking at several thousand PE patients, you can see the reason why we stratify patients by massive and non-massive PE. With uh, non-massive PE, this happens to include submassive patients being less than 10% uh, up to three months, and massive PE patients with an initial steep drop-off in the 50% uh, mortality range in this series. Um, interestingly, uh, thrombolysis in this cohort, uh, or at least in this registry, and obviously there's selection bias in a even prospectively maintained registry, um, but there's not a massive decrease in mortality. It does not bring it back down to a non-massive P or even a sub-massive level. It's still well above 40 percent um, within the initial hospitalization. Uh, well, so outside of the uh, acute issue of dying, which is an important one, um, something that's often forgotten when it comes to the management of pulmonary embolism is the chronic manifestation of the disease, uh, which is chronic thrombobalic pulmonary hypertension. Now, while there may be other causes of CTAP that are not uh, a presenting PE, there's certainly some data that uh, a clinical history of PE predisposes you to the development. And, you know, there's a really nice uh, paper uh, in circulation, and there's a newer one in the New England Journal, which kind of talks about this quite a bit and, and really sums up that risk. If you look at all PEs, the risk of developing CTAP is around 3%. Well, that is true of all PEs, but we're not talking about all PEs, and I think that's an important uh, stratification. So patients who present with pulmonary hypertension at the time of their initial PE have a five to tenfold increase in the risk of developing CTAP over the standard population. Again, this isn't even talking about someone who has uh, a massive PE in uh, respiratory and cardiac uh, extremis. This is just you present and you have a PA systolic pressure over 50, you have a 30 to 40 percent risk of developing CTAP. Uh, looking at the Moppet trial, which was a really nice um, uh, randomized trial comparing uh, half-dose TPA versus uh, um, conventional therapy um, uh, had really excellent outcomes for uh, although a relatively small uh, cohort of patients. Um, but what was important out of that study was at 28 months or two years later, if you gave heparin alone, or anticoagulation, I should say, alone, it was a Lovenox-based regimen, more than half of those patients had persistent pulmonary hypertension at follow-up. And even in the thrombolysis group, 
over 15% had persistent pulmonary hypertension at 28 months. And again, this is a relatively uh, low-risk cohort of submassive PEs, not massive pulmonary hypertension patients at baseline when they presented with their initial PE. Uh, another trial that uh, the TOPCO trial, which showed uh, pretty similar results. So this was at uh, 90 days, not 28 months, but you can see still a third of patients had significant right ventricular dysfunction um, and uh, pretty horrible six-minute walk distances in these patients limited by respiratory compromise. Uh, and that was true both of obviously uh, heparin or uh, TPA, and this was a full-dose TPA study. Uh, well, why does that matter? Okay, so they developed CTAP, so we'll, we'll deal with it when it happens. Well, this is the natural history of CTAP uh, as your pulmonary pressures increase. So as your mean PA pressure increases, your, your mortality dramatically increases. And, and once you get into the severe region, your expected survival or 50% survival falls into the uh, two to five year range. Um, and then you're uh, uh, forced so to speak, to uh, entertain a pulmonary thromboendarterectomy, which is a, a technically much more challenging operation with uh, a moderate component of risk and certainly a, a significant component of morbidity associated with it. Um, not that those outcomes aren't excellent too. So where did the idea of being more aggressive surgically with uh, pulmonary embolism come from. It came from Frederick uh, Trendelenburg, who was a German surgeon, who said, uh, in this way, the false conception has developed that the majority of emboli are instantly fatal. And what he noticed is after particularly birth, which was probably mostly amniotic embolus as opposed to a standard pulmonary embolus, um, people died, but they tended not to die immediately. They tended to become hypoxic have profound JVD, uh, go into right heart failure, and then die usually several hours after that. Um, but he, he surmised that there's a period of time where you can diagnose the patient clinically and then intervene uh, with a Trendelenburg procedure um, and try and save these patients' life. And he proceeded then to operate on many, many patients where he would do a sternotomy, put them in steep Trendelenburg, which is where the terminology came from, uh, put a lasso around the pulmonary artery and the aorta, do complete inflow occlusion with that, open the PA, pull out the clot, sew the PA very quickly, and then take the lasso off and hope the patient didn't die. Well, not surprisingly, he wasn't very successful. He actually never successfully uh, performed the Trendelenburg procedure, which he's named for. However, one of his students, uh, Martin Kirshner, who arguably was just a better surgeon, uh, said, I can do it, as most surgeons do when their uh, uh, mentor fails. And he actually was able to perform the first successful surgical pulmonary um using the standard classical Trendelenburg procedure. He went on to do a few more uh, with mixed results, most of those patients dying, but he is credited with the first successful surgical pulmonary among many other things. But like most things, necessity is the mother of innovation and invention. And um, well, there was a lot of necessity because from 1908 to 1957, there were around 300 surgical pulmonary reported. So that I would imagine that more were done and just not reported, but 300 reported with a less than 5% survival. Um, Edward Churchill was a very famous cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, did quite a few of these and finally gave up and said it's an immediate post-mortem examination and he was never successful in performing a surgical pulmonary Well, luckily he had a great student who, uh, or trainee at the time, who was sitting and watching a young woman die with a pulmonary embolism and his job was every 15 minutes to write down her vital signs and when they reach some critical threshold of hypotension and hypoxia and bradycardia, they would perform the Trendelenburg procedure. And while doing this on this young woman, he thought to himself, well, if the pathophysiology is the inability of blood to get from the right ventricle to the systemic circulation while oxygenated, and it's a pressure and volume overload of the right ventricle, why can't we just take the blood out of the right ventricle and put it into the arterial system? 
And he then sought out to develop the heart-lung machine, which he is credited as the father of the modern cardiopulmonary bypass machine. And all of cardiac surgery is only possible because of this uh, um, uh, moment in time where he realized we can do better. Uh, he never actually uh, performed a surgical lumbarectomy and ironically ended up dying of an MI, but um, again, uh, necessity. So over time, there was a significant improvement uh, once the heart-lung machine was developed in the mortality associated with surgical lumbarectomy. And, and there are multiple registry analyses looking at these outcomes, but I think they have to be taken with a reasonable grain of salt because the technology associated with them is quite different from 1965 as it is to 2015. And actually, if you look specifically in the last five to seven years, the mortality now is routinely less than 20% and in fact less than 10% in most publications. Uh, m some very recent publications out of the uh, Brigham and Women's Group uh, with Mass General out of the Emory Group and, and uh, um, others have shown uh, in massive pulmonary embolism cohorts, mortalities ranging from 13 to 10 to 0 percent. These obviously are quite small series in specialized centers, but nevertheless uh, reassuring that we can do better uh, than historic publications. Uh, I took these images mostly just to show you the basic gist of how one's performed. I tried to get a video for you guys, and unfortunately it just didn't, didn't come out as well as I would have liked, so I thought this was a little bit clearer. So patients are placed usually on cardiopulmonary, or always now on cardiopulmonary bypass, bicaval drainage through the superior uh, um, vena cava and inferior vena cava is established. Um, arterial uh, return to the body is through the ascending aorta. Uh, the cava, um, KV are then snared. Um, in this case, they, they cross-clamp the ascending aorta that routinely is not done anymore to avoid ongoing ischemia to the right ventricle. Uh, it's typically done beating hard at this institution. Then in between the aorta and the sup uh, superior vena cava, excuse me, <coughs> the uh, right pulmonary artery is separately opened uh, longitudinally down into the lower trunk continuation. Uh, and then every segment is visualized and thrombus is extracted. That's just then closed with a running suture. We then separately approach the main PA uh, onto the left PA, again continuing into the lower trunk, um, and the same extraction is uh, uh, performed up to the subsegmental level, and uh, that is then closed. The patient's weaned off cardiopulmonary bypass and uh, brought out of the operating room, usually on um, some inhaled pulmonary vasodilator that's weaned once extubated. So we looked at our outcomes over the past several years just to see where we, we stood relative to other groups. And, you know, overall, it's a relatively sick cohort of patients. Um, uh, I'm excluding the submassive component uh, for the sake of this talk. But if you look at the patients with or without arrest, uh, they tended to be hypotensive despite inotropic and pressure support. Um, the vast majority of them tended to be ventilated. Uh, they all obviously had significant right ventricular dysfunction with evidence of myocardial necrosis, uh, and uh, in, most of them were on 100% FiO2, and several of them needed VA ECMO as a bridge to uh, operative uh, intervention. Um, but we were pretty proud of the outcomes. Uh, you know, overall, in this really sick cohort of patients, uh, only about 12% died in massive without, and even in the massive with arrest, 22% uh, uh, mortality was uh, a pretty reasonable amount, again, in comparison to uh, registry data for the same cohort of patients treated with conventional medical therapy. But looking a little closer at the cause of death, the vast majority of these deaths tended to be neurologic. So you take a patient, they're paralyzed, on pressors, on 100% vented. Um, there's no real way to get a neurologic exam, especially post-arrest. Um, but patients are sick. People want us to do something, so we bring them down to the operating room and hope their head's okay. Well, a fair number of those patients' heads are not going to be okay. And what we found is four out of five of those deaths actually were neurologic deaths, presumably from the you know, initial arrest. Um, and one patient never recovered his right ventricular function and died of multisystem organ failure. Um, and, you know, in addition to just dying, a lot of patients struggled postoperatively requiring uh, prolonged inotropic and pressor support. 
uh, till their RV kind of settled out. And uh, that, that was not an uncommon finding after the operation when you take these really sick people to the operating room, acidotic, right ventricular already um, angry, and then you put them through a big operation, they tend not to immediately bounce back, even though you've removed the anatomic uh, burden. So we asked ourselves, how can we do better? How can we decrease a 20% mortality um, in this cohort? Well, one thing we do a lot of and uh, reasonably well at this institution is ECMO, um, particularly venoarterial ECMO. We're now up to about actually 80 venoarterial ECMOs a year. Um, and we thought, well, why, why can't we take a, a, a lesson from uh, previous uh, smart people and say, well, if we can unload the right ventricle by draining blood out of the venous system, oxygenate it and pump it into the arterial system, why can't we recover the end organ function these patients present with? Why can't we let the RV recover so that if they need an intervention, uh, they tend to recover quickly from, from that second insult? And why can't we use that as a triage for patients who have a devastating neurologic uh, event that we can't uh, get them through with or without surgery and, and save the family the, the pain associated with a prolonged post-operative course where as most surgeons, we say, well, why don't we give him a week? Why don't we give him 10 days? I, he might wake up. Maybe it's not that bad. Whereas here, you can pretty quickly evaluate for brain death and, and allow the family and the patient to um, uh, resolve uh, the, the waiting, painful experience. So we looked at probably what was the largest experience previously. There are a few published experiences on uh, uh, ECMO for... Um, massive pulmonary embolism. This is out of the Michigan group. Uh, there was a few patients they treated with VV early on and immediately abandoned that as it doesn't really fix the fundamental problem, which again is not hypoxia, but actually right ventricular failure. Um, and they did pretty well in this cohort of very sick patients. They had a 62% survival um, in what was a relatively historical ECMO experience. So using pretty old technology that is associated with pretty uh, moribund ECMO runs um, and they came up with this really complex uh, algorithm, which ironically only puts ECMO after cardiopulmonary arrest that you can't uh, get return of spontaneous circulation for, then as a bridge to basically weaning the patient off of ECMO, um, very seldomly taking that patient for surgical pulmonary embolectomy. And, you know, if you actually dive down into the more granular data in that paper, which is nicely broken up by each patient, and you look at patients who got salvage ECMO, so that means they had some other intervention done prior, and then uh, ECMO was instituted while the patient was either arresting or uh, acutely decompensating after that initial intervention, whether it be TPA, catheter-based therapy, or surgical pulmonary They had about a 45% survival. But in the cohort of patients where ECMO was the primary initiating therapy, they had an 80% survival. And again, that's using fairly old technology. So we, we asked ourselves, well, rather than repeating what other people have done, maybe we can improve upon it by having a very strict algorithmic approach to these patients using ECMO as an initial strategy to stabilize the patient, recover end organ function, recover RV function, um, and uh, then uh, either uh, wean to survival, wean to... Uh, withdrawal of care in the case of a uh, irrecoverable neurologic event and wean to uh, surgical pulmonary in, in the cases where spontaneous th uh, uh, thrombolysis does not happen. So I don't know if this projects well. I hope it does. Uh, our, our current algorithm is all patients are cannulated with a 25 French venous drainage cannula in one groin. A contralateral 17 to 19 French arterial return is placed in the other groin with a 6 French distal perfusion cannula. If the patient is not intubated at the time of cannulation, we do not intubate these patients. We place them on ECMO awake, and if uh, there's any other meaningful lesson from this talk I hope uh, I can convey is that patients who have massive pulmonary embolism that are intubated die during intubation. It is the most singular dangerous thing you can do to a massive PE patient is to intubate that patient. So uh, we, we uh, do not, we give them a little bit of ketamine and then just use local anesthetic and place them on 
um, ECMO for stabilization. And then if they were intubated, we very rapidly extubate these patients. Uh, they're fully systemically anticoagulated to standard uh, um, uh, PE protocolized uh, levels. Uh, I think at this institution it's 72 to 113 or something along those lines for a PTT. Um, we continue VA ECMO then until uh, three points are met. One is neurologic status is determined. Two, end organ function is recovered. Normalization of creatinine, normalization of T billion liver function. Um, and then um, initially was a five-day course of anticoagulation in hopes that they would spontaneously resolve their thrombus. Um, and we weren't sure how many would or wouldn't uh, when we started this protocol. And then once you met those three goals, we repeated the transthoracic echocardiogram and uh, moved from there. So obviously, if you had a neurologic death, withdrawal of care was uh, performed usually around the three-day mark. And I say usually, it only happened in one patient in this series. Um, RV function uh, was then assessed. If it was normal, the patient was weaned to recovery and just decannulated. And if they had persistent RV dysfunction, then we repeated their CTA just to confirm that they still had persistent burden. And then a surgical pulmonary embolectomy was performed. All patients, regardless, uh, post-decannulation received an IVC filter. Uh, and uh, looking at these two cohorts, you can see they're relatively sick patients when placed on lactates in the six range acidotic, uh, 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 pretty low PF ratios, renal dysfunction. This is an immediate process, so already having a rise in creatinine, pretty telling. Already having rising transaminase is pretty telling. Um, and then relatively high vasoinotropic scores and SOFA scores. Um, and then you can see at the time of decannulation, whether it was for surgical pulmonary um optimization or whether it was just uh, weaning to decannulation, uh, you know, all of those metrics were normalized prior to that. Uh, importantly, about a quarter of those patients were not intubated at the time of presentation. So again, we, we placed them on a wake VA ECMO, and I guess just, uh, again, just um, want to emphasize the importance of not intubating uh, massive pulmonary embolism patients. Uh, ECMO duration, as you would expect, was around five days, a little bit shorter in some patients, a little bit longer in others, but uh, as per protocol. Um, and then the outcomes were, were uh, surprising, actually, because I, I wasn't as convinced that as many patients would respond as well with anticoagulation as long as they did. And it ended up being about 50-50. So half the patients we had to ultimately take for surgical bombolectomy, and half the patients we were able to treat with anticoagulation alone. Um, overall, patients did very well. This was a 20-patient uh, initial uh, cohort that we evaluated, um, and uh, no patient left the hospital with RV dysfunction, and uh, in hospital, and 90-day survival was uh, 95%. So we were quite happy. We were able to bring down a, a very significant mortality from 12 to 22% range down to the 5% range. Um, so, you know, maybe we just cherry-pick these patients, and maybe if we compare them to our historical cohort, the reason we did better with ECMO than we did with surgical bombolectomy was because we just chose better. So we, we went back, and after we uh, enrolled another 10 or so patients, um, uh, looked back our historical experience with um, uh, surgical bombolectomy. Uh, and then just quickly looking at the, the triage and uh, optimization protocol that uh, we called it, which maybe not the best name ever, but um, we uh, found uh, just a progressive decrease in mortality um, with only one patient ultimately receiving withdrawal of care from neurologic uh, devastation. Um, and then, again, 50-50 ultimately being decannulated versus requiring a surgical pulmonary But importantly, no patient died after surgical pulmonary So from a resource and uh, um, uh, general compassion standpoint for the family and the patient, uh, that was a, a reasonably good outcome not to have patients undergo uh, surgical pulmonary just to still ultimately die uh, days later. So now comparing it to our historical out, um, Outcomes, uh, again, mortality was decreased from 20% to 3% uh, in this series. Uh, importantly, there was a decreased time from cardiac arrest to intervention. So as you can imagine, mobilizing an OR, getting them down there, 
opening their chest, putting them in cardiopulmonary bypass um, takes time. Putting someone on ECMO in the CCRU takes around 15 to 30 minutes. So we were able to significantly reduce the intervention time. And while uh, you know it's a small series and this is purely speculative, I'd like to think that part of the reason the neurologic outcomes were significantly better in the ECMO cohort was because there wasn't this prolonged period post-arrest of hypotension and hypoxia that is inherent even if you get return of spontaneous circulation in PE patients, that they immediately had oxygenated, pressurized blood going to these patients' brains as soon as we saw them. Uh, additionally, we were able to avert about half the patients didn't need surgical pulmonary bolectomy. So we were able just to treat them with a bedside intervention initially and then a small incision in their groin to decannulate them afterwards and save them a sternotomy and uh, the recovery and, and morbidity associated with that. The, the last interesting difference between the two cohorts, and this again gets back to that really important point, intubation is a dangerous thing in a PE patient. 15% of patients in our historical cohort, when they got to the operating room and uh, anesthesia-induced, um, they arrested. And we had to urgently open their chest and crash them on cardiopulmonary bypass, whereas obviously no patient uh, already stabilized on VA ECMO who then went down uh, suffered that um, more abundant uh, complication. So the next question was, well, does everyone have to wait five days? Do we have to keep people you know, tied to an ECMO machine with its inherent risks for five days? Or, or are there ri fundamental risk factors that we can kind of tell this patient is going to need a surgical membolectomy, let's just do it right away once their creatinine is normal and their RV is a little recovered um, and save them a few days of ECMO support and a few days of hospital length of stay. And, and there are, and you know, we kind of hypothesize that maybe it has a lot to do with the likelihood of resolution of the thrombus based on how old the thrombus is. And you know, this is not a new idea. It, ha it comes from the DVT literature, uh, which has been thoroughly studied. Um, once thrombus is older than about two weeks, the likelihood of spontaneous lysis or even lytic-driven uh, lysis is incredibly small. And, and those, those thrombi tend never to resolve, although they do sometimes get recannulized. Um, so my thought was, if you have a patient who presents with an old clot, that doesn't mean an old PE, so they could have an acute PE that happened yesterday, but from a DVT that was six weeks old, that patient is very unlikely to resolve their thrombus. So we did exactly that. We stratified the two patients by who ultimate, uh, two uh, patient cohorts by who ultimately got a surgical embolectomy with persistent RV dysfunction and who resolved their thrombus and had normal RV function, and then we just compared their um, uh, presenting uh, demographics. So if you had a history of PE or DVT in the past, you were much less likely to resolve your, your RV because presumably you've had uh, either uh, a chronic acute, um, acute presentation of your thrombus or you have acute on chronic disease, patients who had a known DVT for longer than two weeks, which is defined as a chronic DVT, um, tended to not resolve it. Patients who had a surgical intervention that was recent tended to always resolve it, because presumably that DVT was developed at the time of their intervention. Um, and then interestingly, troponins did not uh, correlate to the risk of recovery or not recover, uh, but your BNP level did. Again, more of a subacute process uh, for a BNP to be elevated rather than uh, an immediate release of troponin. Um, so just, I think I have some time. Yeah, so just touching base on a couple of the fallacies that surround surgical pulmonary in general, but the, the surgical treatment of PE. Um, is uh, a lot of patients aren't referred for surgical pulmonary bolectomy because the clot burden is too peripheral. It's too hard to get surgically. And historically, that was a true statement because the main pulmonary artery was the only thing opened. And as you can see on this CT, you know, the only thing you can really reach is this big saddle embolus. It would be very hard to reach into the right or left main PA, especially if it's beyond the pericardial reflection, in order to do that. At our center, we do a reasonable number of pulmonary thromboendarterectomies, which require you to make separate incisions and have direct visualization of the very distal subsegmental uh, vessels. 
Um, so we, we historically did not exclude these patients and, and did take them and performed our acute surgical is very similar to how I, I perform my pulmonary thrombo and our directomies for CTAP patients. Um, and you can kind of see the difference in clot burden uh, between the two. One is a nice, long, sausage-looking thrombus, which you can pluck out relatively easily. But the other one is these subsegmental occlusive thrombi um, that if you actually weigh the two in these two pictures are almost identical in uh, clot burden, but clearly are not easily accessible unless you've targeted them from a surgical approach. So we looked back and we basically stratified patients by two cohorts looking at our surgical pulmonary um, whether you had a thrombus that was within the confines of the pericardial border or outside of the pericardial border, which historically by surgeons is defined as too peripheral. Um, and we first asked the question, well, are they just as sick or are they just not sick enough to even need it? Um, and they basically look identical. They all have relatively equal troponin releases, uh, equal amounts of RV dysfunction, equal amounts of uh, inotrope and pressor support, uh, equal distribution of massive to submassive, equal need for ECMO preoperatively. Um, so in general, we thought they were pretty similar cohorts from a acuity of illness. Um, and then we compared the actual operative component, which it takes a little bit longer to do the operation when it's peripherally based. You have to, you know, take your time, dissect out the vessels a little more. Um, so it is a little more of a burden on the surgeon, but otherwise the outcomes were identical. Patients tended to do very, very well um, with identical uh, um, survivals at, uh, in hospital in 90 days and now up to one year. So we think we could get these patients through just as easily, and you know, we don't think that peripheral distribution, again, uh, going back to my original point, Anatomic burden and distribution do not portend outcome nor the uh, ability for us to intervene. Fallacy two, while it's super morbid, it's a really invasive intervention. You know, I wouldn't want a sternotomy myself, so I can't really blame people for not wanting to refer patients for one. Uh, so something we've worked on very hard here uh, is to have a less invasive approach. Uh, this is a patient who actually presented with a massive pulmonary embolus, uh, was on two inotropes and pressors at the time he presented down to the operating room. Um, and we were able to do it through a five to seven centimeter skin incision and an upper hemisternotomy sparing the entire remainder of the sternum. Uh, we've now done somewhere in the 30 or so range with uh, excellent outcomes. We've had no uh, mortality at all uh, in this cohort um, and their average hospital length of stay is about four days. I think that's actually very relevant because if you look at the registry data for TPA, it's also about four days. Um, and these patients on follow-up are back to work uh, usually by uh, one to two weeks uh, postoperatively as they don't have the same weightlifting restrictions that a standard sternotomy patient has. Um, the last thing is, well, you know, you're going to put them on ECMO. They're not going to walk. They're not going to do well. You know, maybe just giving them a quick shot of TPA makes a lot more sense. And I think that historically was true, but uh, I think the way we've protocolized our care for these patients has changed that quite a bit as now we don't intubate the patient if they weren't already intubated. And then even if they were intubated, we very rapidly extubate them. And uh, despite ECMO support historically being a contraindication to ambulation, we now ambulate any patient who is physically able to do so. Um, and uh, uh, in, in this series that uh, I described to you, 75% uh, of the patients actually walked around the unit um, on a daily basis, um, therefore not really losing much ground uh, while waiting to see if they could spontaneously resolve their thrombus. So, you know, in conclusion, surgical pulmonary is, uh, in my opinion, uh, safe and highly effective treatment for mass PE. Um, outcomes appear to be better than historical treatments uh, with non-surgical intervention uh, within the confines of a retrospective review comparing to registry data. Um, and then we, we think, uh, based on our uh, institutional experience, that further improvement and survival can be uh, achieved with a strict, protocolized approach to the care of these patients. Thank you. Take any questions?
Where do you feel the uh, ultrasound, direct TPA, suck the clot out, yeah. in intravascular intervention yeah. plays with all this? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And I, I struggled with that for a long time. And uh, I have to say we did, we did attempt to use multiple modalities of endovascular intervention for PE. And that includes the penumbra catheter, which is a, a suction evacuator catheter. Uh, includes the ECOS catheter, which is an ultrasound accelerated thrombolytic uh, trip catheter. And, you know, we really were not, in, particularly in the massive cohort patients, not impressed with the outcomes. Uh, one, I think the fundamental problem with it is it's very good at disrupting large thrombi into smaller thrombi that then can be broken up over time. Well, the problem in a massive PE patient doing that is you have a central non-obstructive thrombus that then breaks up and becomes completely occlusive distally. And we've had several occurrences in the operating room where patients acutely arrested um, as that more central thrombus became more distal and obstructive. Um, you know, for the submassive cohort, there's certainly a lot of controversy, and it's actually a point that we're trying to answer at this institution with a randomized trial. Um, I, I happen to be a uh, believer in super aggressive or super conservative therapy for PE. Um, I've, I've not advocated, although I won't advocate against catheter-based therapy, uh, even in the submassive cohort. I think many of those patients will do very well with heparin alone. Many of those patients may be better suited with surgical pulmonary but I think we hopefully will answer that question soon with a, a, a soon-to-be-enrolling randomized trial in submassive cohort of patients. Um, you know, the one small uh, caveat I'll, I'll say to that is most of the trials looking at catheter-based therapy have been in submassive patients. So the ultimate trial, the Seattle 2 trial, the, the perfect registry data, uh, there's very, very few massive patients. In fact, it was a contraindication to the ultimate trial, and I think there were three or two patients included in the Seattle 2 trial that had massive uh, PE. And in fact, in the Seattle 2 trial, it was even a contraindication if you were hypotensive on pressors, you were excluded from the trial, um, uh, which, again, is why they probably only had two enrolled. And, you know, the data acutely is quite good. You certainly get a decrease in the RV to LV ratio in the ultimate trial. You certainly get a decrease in PA pressures. Uh, but the 90-day 90, 90 data looks exactly the same, whether you've got heparin or catheter-based therapy. So it's hard for me to advocate a, an intervention that I think can cause harm um, without a lot of meaningful, even midterm, uh, uh, clinically relevant data. Um, and then even the non-clinically relevant data, like I said, in 90 days ends up exactly the same between the two interventions. Um, there, there's one other randomized trial, which is actually a, a great trial from years and years ago that uh, looked at the ECOS catheter in particular. They basically turned it on in one group and they didn't turn it on in the other group had the same exact uh, resolution of thrombus. Um, there's a little bit older from this, I think from the 90s, there was an uh, interventional cardiologist that took all of his PE patients with bilateral disease and put it on one side. He just basically used a swan at the time and uh, dripped TPA on one side and only switched it to the other side if on a daily PA gram, which would be hard to do nowadays, uh, he noticed that he didn't get resolution. Only 4% of patients ultimately got that switched over to the other side. So, you know, the lungs are, I think, a little different than uh, systemic arterial thrombi where, you know, only 2 5% of the total cardiac output is ever going to get there. 100% of the cardiac output is going to get to the lungs. So I think whether you give it peripherally or centrally, in, in my opinion, probably doesn't make a huge difference. Were any of the 29 uh, VA ECMO yeah. patients subject to TPA initially? Yeah. And then uh, what was the usual duration of shock prior to the ECMO machine going? Um, so about 20% of patients received TPA. Um, I think that's probably a little less now uh, than it was historically. Uh, I think TPA was uh, given much earlier um, before, I think, we just started working together a little better and, and utilizing ECMO a little more. Uh, TPA certainly in a patient is kind of painful to cannulate them or do anything on them surgically. Um, so I think that number is probably less now. It's probably in the 5 to 10% of patients. Um, in that initial cohort, is probably around 20%. Um, what was the second question? Uh, duration of shock. Oh, um, 
It's a good question. Uh, most of those patients were transported from outside hospitals. So I'd say several hours at least, um, some of them a day or two probably. Uh, but uh, I can tell you from arrest intervention was around four hours in, in the patients who suffered a cardiac arrest. Um, but usually in the hour range, not the day range. Um, if there's a patient at a surrounding hospital that has a big one and we want to send them in to you for ECMO, um, and they're not intubated, would you suggest, obviously we're going to deal with it on a case-by-case -case basis with uh, express care, mm -hmm. um, maximizing vasoactives and flying them without an endotracheal tube, or can you send an ECMO team to cannulate them? Uh, so the, I guess the first part is, should they be intubated? Um, just like you said, I think by case by case basis, you should have this discussion, but overall, I think not. I think people are very good at breathing. And if you have no parenchymal lung disease, the vent is very unlikely to do a better job at breathing than you are. Um, so I, I actually typically answer that question when a referring physician calls me about a P patient, which says I think the risk of transporting them without an endotracheal tube, regardless of their hemodynamic compromise, um, is outweighed by the risk of a, a bad event with intubation. And I have to say I've had at least a handful of patients where we had this discussion, they felt uncomfortable, they intubated the patient, and the patient died you know, on intubation. Um, in regards to mobile ECMO, uh, there is selectively uh, some possibility for that. Um, there's In the state of Maryland in particular, there's a lot of uh, difficulty in getting emergency privileges at other institutions. Uh, it's less of a problem for institutions that are within our system. Uh, but that's been one of the major limiting factors in it. I'll be honest, we used to be really excited, and this was for VV or VA and not specific to PE. We were really excited about a transport ECMO program, and we worked really hard to build it. And then what we realized was it took substantially longer to get a team together, go to the hospital, get things set up there, put the patient on ECMO, and then transport the patient back on ECMO than it was to just say, put them in a helicopter, put them in an ambulance, get them here as quick as you can, um, and then we can get them cannulated in 15 minutes in the CCRU in probably the most controlled ECMO cannulation environment uh, anywhere in the world. So, uh, you know, we're, we're actually actively looking at that uh, retrospectively now to see the outcomes of patients that uh, we've peripherally cannulated versus cannulated in the CCRU and their outcomes, and they're identical and Knock on wood, we've not had any deaths in transit for those really more abundantly sick patients. Zach, would, would you mind just commenting on your preferred management for submassive? I know the talk was on massive, but there's so much controversy surrounding it. Dr. Zubro touched on it, yeah. um, and we're going to be addressing it in a, in a talk in a week or two. Um, but I wanted to get your take. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll be honest, there's been an evolution for me. Personally, I, you know, I'm, I'm a surgeon. I used to think, you know, have knife will cut. Um, and I, I've certainly moved away from that a lot. Uh, I think certain patients are certainly well-suited for surgical mobilectomy, even in the submassive cohort. But I think many will do very, very well with anticoagulation alone. So, you know, I, I like using the BOVA uh, categorization of, of patients. I think it's a really meaningful physiologic uh, uh, assessment. It correlates well to mortality, which I think is what people are really concerned with when it comes to PE. Um, so BOVA class one patients, I'll say I, I don't think I've taken a BOVA class one patient in, in two years to the operating room. Um, BOVA class two and three, if they are not on extensive uh, oxygen support, so they're not on 60, 80, 100% FiO2 vapotherm, I t and otherwise obviously hemodynamically stable by definition and not an end organ dysfunction, so not a rise in creatinine, tubule, something like that, I, I tended to at least a five-day trial of anticoagulation, re-echo them. If their RV normalizes, they go home on, on you know, Aliquis or Pradaxa, and we follow them up pretty closely for the development of CTEP. Um, if they don't resolve their RV dysfunction, they remain symptomatic after five days, I will offer them surgical pulmonary um, 
that other cohort I talked about, which is you know on 60, 80, 100% FiO2 or just struggling to breathe, I, I tend to offer them in the BOVA 2 and particularly 3 class uh, an earlier intervention because I think they end up getting you know a little bit of pain medicine, a little bit of anxiolytic. They they breathe slightly slower. They get a little hypercapnic, and then and then they arrest. So uh, those patients, I am a little more aggressive. But I have to say, you know, there's heparin works really well for submassive P patients in general, and a lot of patients will do absolutely fine. And I'd say it's only about 20% of patients where we do a trial of anticoagulation alone. Do we not just send them home then on anticoagulation with normal RV function? Only about 20%. And, and honestly, that 20% probably is people who are presenting with acute on chronic disease, and they'll ultimately get a pulmonary thromboendarterectomy as opposed to uh, an acute embolectomy. You mentioned um, a couple things in your talk. First, you know, which makes complete sense in a number of disease processes. The earlier, more aggressive therapy, you know, the greater the opportunity to affect outcome. I mean, sort of a nice generalization. Mm -hmm. um, and number two, you you touched on the Moppet trial. With integrating those uh, those two points um, for those that with a, a lower risk score instead of you know, standard anticoagulation during those five days. Uh, are there any circumstances when you consider half-dose uh, lytics in order to... Uh, yeah, no, I, th I think it's a great question. And I was actually really excited with the MAPA trial data because it was a nice kind of middle-of-the-road, seemingly very safe, you know, approach. The problem with the MAPA trial is it's a really, really small trial. It's about 100 patients. I think there was 55 or 58 patients in each group. And it was not reproducible in registry data. So there, there's actually been two publications looking at large series of patients and basically showed lef, less efficacy compared to full dose and equal bleeding events compared to full dose, which was very starkly different than the MAPA trial uh, cohort, which essentially had no bleeding events and had perfect resolution in 85% of patients. Um, so I, I'm hesitant to endorse half-dose TPA, and because I'm not a big fan of full-dose TPA, because I think the risk of 2 to 5%, depending on your age and other comorbidities of a major intracranial hemorrhage, um, is, is something I wouldn't want. I, I tend to offer patients. Now, I, I'm, I'm a pretty, uh, I, I like to think I'm a pretty honest guy when I talk to patients, and I, I tend to tell them every option. It, which includes catheter-based therapy and uh, TPA. And I tell them what my personal bias is against those, you know, so I'm not selling them the other uh, interventions. But I, I tend to go through the entire gambit of intervention that we have available to them, and then I ask them to choose. And if they want to see a vascular surgeon, I have them get, see a vascular surgeon. If they want to, you know, get systemic TPA, I, I, don't, I don't fight it. I think I don't advocate, it for, advocate for it either, though if that makes sense. Thank you.